So please turn with me now to 1 Samuel 31 as we close out our time in this book. And a reminder, we will begin the pastoral epistles next week. We will begin with 1 Timothy. So I encourage you to begin reading that book. And I hope that they will be a blessing to us. I know they will be. And... um, as we work through them. Before we come to this text today about uh, the death of Saul, let us go to the Lord in prayer and seek his help with it. Our Father, as we come to you, we pray um, guidance through your word that we would see it as our absolute authority, its um, authority over our lives, our decisions, what we do, what we say, that we would see it as binding in our lives, um, not something that we can just idly choose or not choose, but something that is absolutely binding on the lives and the hearts of Christians, that we would be convicted by sin as we read through it, that we would seek to bring you and you glory alone. We pray that we would see Jesus, Lord, and show him to us as we open this text. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So, as I thought of this and read this passage a few times, it's not a really good way to end a book. You know, you think about most most of the books that we like to read kind of end well, and you're like, yay, you cheer at the end. Well, there's no real cheering at the end of this book. It kind of reminded me of uh, the way that some movie trilogies work out you know if you go to the movies now especially with all the superhero movies that are going on there's not really trilogies anymore they're all just kind of mashed together uh you go to the movies expecting to hear about the next sequel that's going to come out you don't really or some sort of spin-off movie you know like wonder woman was justice league and uh, you just expect that there's going to be something else Uh, It wasn't always the case. You know, there's a few famous trilogies, uh, Star Wars, namely, uh, which is now moving towards its ninth installment. Um, But back when it was just three, Empire Strikes Back was my favorite because of, like, Hoth and Cloud City and all the, the fun stuff that's in that movie. But there's a problem with that movie, though. There's nothing wrong with it. But the problem with it is when it's over, it doesn't really end well. You're kind of like... Oh, and you're really waiting for the next one to come out. Thankfully, we don't have to wait. It's out. We can just watch it. It's on our shelves. It's good. Uh, but you're, you're waiting for that to happen. You're like, oh, this isn't happy. This didn't end well. The, the, some of the heroes are kind of gone, and everybody's fragmented. It's what a good story does, right? But it, and a good story also leads us to the end. But if it had ended there, that would have been a really bad ending to, uh, to a story, right? And this is a lot how 1 Samuel is going to end for us today. At the end of the story, we're going to feel like the bad guys won. Um, well, we know that they don't. I mean, we know that there's a book called 2 Samuel right next door to this one. Uh, and since we won't be going into that today, really, uh, we need to consider this text that is before us. It's the end of an era for Israel. Their first king is going to die along with his sons. And his sons, especially Jonathan, was a beloved man in Israel. 
And we can look at this a few ways, I guess, maybe thinking, well, yes, it's good because David's going to be king now, but there's also, why did Jonathan have to die? And was there any hope for Saul at all in his uh, last days? And so we're going to consider these questions, what they have to do with our own lives. Uh, I want to you know, focus on the fact that sin is very destructive, even this side of Jesus Christ. We know and we see that, I think, on a daily basis. A saved person can still destroy their lives with sin and the lives of others. And I think we're going to see that truth spring out of the text today. And um, there is hope, of course. We'll see that as well. It leads us to Jesus thankfully. And so as we consider the two main ideas from the text, they are sin that leads to death and hope for redemption. With that, let's read the text together. Let's stand together as we read the text from God's Word. 1 Samuel 31, starting at verse 1. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchashua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust, through, thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. For his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, his three sons and his armor-bearer and all of his men, on the same day together. When the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley... And beyond the Jordan saw the men of Israel fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities, and they fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head, and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor on the temple of the Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. And when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard that what the Philistines had done to Saul, all valiant men arose and went all, and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took the bones and burned them under the Tamish tree in Jabesh, and fasted seven days. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So again, kind of a sad ending. Um, but we kind of knew this was headed this way for a long time in this book. Remember where we last left off with Saul? He was leaving the witch at Endor, who had just summoned the dead Samuel... And Saul was hoping to get a good word from Samuel, and he didn't. Instead, he got a very bad word. Remember that he and his sons were going to die, that Israel was going to lose. It was a very bad word for Saul. But the witch did make him a last meal, and they sat and ate. So I guess it could have been worse. So they sat and ate their meal. And remember, his, he and his men walked out in the night 
off to what they figured would be certain death. And so hopefully, I think, hopefully that scene, and this scene that we just read even, would make us think of something that happened a lot earlier in the book, when an unnamed prophet told Eli that his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, would die in battle. History has a way of repeating itself, and we see that even in the confines of this book. Remember, Israel took the ark of God to battle, hoping that it would bring them luck. Instead, it brought them the death of their prophets. They lost the ark, and remember, big old Eli fell off his chair and broke his neck uh, when, when they came back to town and told him, thus ending this era of the judges, remember, and these bad men who were... Uh, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. So Saul is facing a similar kind of prophecy and with similar results. Israel's going to have this massive changing of the guard after this battle. Uh, we're going to get into 2 Samuel. When we, when we get into 2 Samuel, if, if we decide to go there after uh, the pastorals, um, we're going to see what a lot of that looks like. It's a lot of turmoil. It's a lot of difficulty. But whatever the details are, we, we do know that Israel is going to have a big change. It's going to come at the cost of their leadership. All of their leadership is going to die there on Mount Gilboa. And I think you can see what I mean when I think that it doesn't end well. It feels like there's a story yet to be told. I think it's a good reminder for us that good does win in the end in the story. You think of the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. Remember when God told the serpent. He told the serpent that um, there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and you will bite his heel, but he will crush your head. And we see that working itself out all throughout Scripture. This is no different. Um, and we know that the he that is going to come and crush the head of the serpent ultimately is our Lord Jesus Christ. Saul here representing the seed of the serpent. I think David representing the seed of the woman. And the Philistines representing the instrument that God uses to rid his people of a bad king. And to see them brought to a time of prosperity. And so with that, let's look at the first point. That's the sin that leads to death. So very early in this narrative, we're told of the casualties of war. It doesn't take long for us to learn that uh, Jonathan dies and that his son or his brothers die and then Saul dies. Jonathan seems to be one of the first casualties there as the Philistine storm Mount Gilboa. I think it's helpful to, for us to stop and remember Jonathan. The uh, reading of uh, from Saul or from Second Samuel one was helpful this morning as David lamented from his from his friend and and he. He died, and I think we, he, we'll hear more about Jonathan as the story goes on if we decide to do Second Samuel. One of my favorite stories in Scripture is from Second Samuel 9, with the story of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Jonathan was a man of character and morality, even though he served a lunatic as a father. And I think it deserves to be noted that Jonathan served his father to the end, to the absolute end. Even though he knew that his every move, Saul's every move, was folly, he served him loyally anyway. And I think that's a good thing. It cost him his life, but his faith 
was in the Lord, not in his father. And so that means his death was just a very small part of his eternal life with his Savior, Jesus Christ. And I do believe Jonathan looked forward to the day that his Savior would come, and he now sees it and is glad. So we talk a lot about the people that we'd like to talk to in heaven, and I think Jonathan will be one that I'd like to sit and hear from. He seems like an incredible kind of guy, uncommon valor and bravery, yet lived a life above reproach, at least from what we know of him. Uh, It was a sad way for him to die. Just a word on Jonathan. He and his brothers die just as Samuel's ghost said they would. And now we come to Saul who's pressed on all sides. And I think it's impressive too that now Saul has taken arrows from the archers and he's still up and he's still talking and he's still fighting, um, which seems impressive until he starts talking, uh, which is usually the case for Saul. Uh, How does he die? He doesn't die fighting. He doesn't die with Philistines surrounding him, you know, like we'd expect to see, maybe if this was like Lord of the Rings or something like that. No, he tells his armor-bearer to kill him. His armor-bearer won't do it because it's the king. Of course he's not going to do that. So instead he chooses to fall on his own sword. Second Samuel lets us know that another man came along to finish him off. But the point of this is, is that Saul chose to die in a cowardly way which highlights the way that he lived. Trying to find the easy way out of things, always seeking his own desires, his own wants, always bringing glory to Saul and no one else. He dies along with his arm bearer. The Philistines find the bodies as they go to uh, strip the bodies of their armor and their weapons and different things. And then they desecrate them, of course. They hang the bodies for all to see. They even remove Saul's head. And they probably put it in a box and sent it around Philistia as some sort of trinket of their victory. And whether or not they, unsure from the text, from the original text, if they carried his head as the message or they just carried the message. But either way, the message that they carried was what the text calls good news. What does the New Testament use when it uses the word good news? The gospel. So I find it fascinating that the gospel for the Philistines is the destruction of their enemies, the desecration of the Lord's anointed king and his sons. They even send them to the house of their idols, which I think is also telling for us. They hang Saul's armor there at the the altar of Ashtaroth, which has already been proved to be false earlier in this book, but they still do that anyway. It's a pretty sad story. So what do we do with it? How should it help us in our walks with the Lord today? Well, I think it first of all reminds us of a great truth concerning sin. What is that truth? There is a way that seems right to man, but the end of it leads in death. That would be a great theme verse for this book, I believe. Saul demonstrates that with his life, that there is a way that seems right Paul or Saul was always doing what he thought was right. The end of it leads in death. We saw that with Hophni and Phinehas in the beginning. We see that with Saul here. Our sins have far-reaching consequences. We often bring others down with us. 
Think about what Saul did. He, his sin did not just affect him. It affected his sons. It affected his sons' families. It affected the whole of Israel. Everyone is affected by the fact that Saul chose poorly, refused to obey. I think as Christians, we live in a covenant community. We've talked about the covenant a lot. We live in a covenant community here inside this building with just us, but also the covenant community of Christians here in Murray is a thing. And the sin of the, its members affects the whole. We've all seen that. The same for our individual families. The sins of a member of our family affects everybody. There's no way around it. And so I think a major message for us as we look at the life of Saul is to, for us to consider our actions very carefully because they have far-reaching consequences. The way that we treat others, the way that we talk to people and about people, it affects others. There's always someone watching and there's always someone learning. It's important. Saul's actions changed Israel during his life and really affected the way that Israel did things in the future as well. You can see his influence going out through all the rest of the history books. They're there. This is his first, their first king. It affects the way that they do things. I think it should also, it also teaches us concerning unbelieving people in our lives as well, because Saul, I believe, is an unbeliever. Um, we, as Christians, often expect unbelievers to walk and talk like us, but they don't. Why? Is it because we're better decision makers or more moral people? That's not it. It's the presence of Christ in our lives that makes the difference. Christ in us not only frees us from the bondage of sin, but it also causes us to want to do good things. Did we see that in the life of Saul? No. We want to act right. We want to treat all people with dignity because Christ is in us. We don't see that with the unbeliever. They don't have that. While they may demonstrate themselves to be good folks sometimes, I know some really good people that are unbelievers. What are they ultimately searching for? They're searching for a Savior, and that Savior is not Jesus Christ. And so it's important for us to remember when we're dealing with unbelievers, they have a different way of looking at things a different way of seeing the world. And I think we see that very well in a sharp contrast between David and Saul. And I think most importantly, Saul's life should serve as a warning for us as believers. We're told by the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter 1 verse 10, says that we should make our calling and election sure. Paul gives us a very similar admonition in the book of Philippians 2.12. He says that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What are they talking about, these two apostles? Do they mean, are they meaning to say that we should work to bring about our salvation? No. If you just read the rest of their writings, they are sure to remind us over and over 
that Jesus did the work that earned our salvation. So what does this mean to make our calling election sure, to work out our salvation? It means that a believer will show evidence of his or her faith in their growth as a believer, in the way that they act. And it does mean then that we should continue to work on that part of our salvation. Do we treat people the way that we should? Do we say the things that we should? Do we do the things that we should? If we don't, we should start. Not in order to purchase our salvation, but in order to show our salvation. That's important. Paul gives us another warning in 2 Corinthians uh, 13. He tells us that we should examine ourselves continually. Examine yourself to see whether or not you are in the faith, is what he tells the people of that church. Why would he tell people who are Christians to do that? Because it's good for us. Does that mean that we should continually doubt our salvation? No, that's not what he's saying. Am I saved? I don't know. We shouldn't be doing that. That's not helpful. However, we should constantly be aware of our life and our actions. They demonstrate our faith. And that's important for us. I was at a meeting this past week full of pastors and elders that we all took a picture together um, out by this little lake that we're at this place in the mountains and someone took a picture of all these pastors and elders and my brother-in-law Danny some of you have met Danny he's, his comment when he saw the picture was there's very little head hair in that picture <laughs> he was absolutely right my point for saying that is this is a bunch of older pastors and elders men who have been in the faith for a long, long time. And a man stood up and preached a sermon that every one of us as pastors and elders should examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. Paul's words aren't just for the young believers. They are for all of us. And I think Saul's life demonstrates that as well. We need to examine ourselves to see that. We need to look at our lives and see, are we demonstrating the faith which we say to believe? And I think if this book has taught us anything, we've learned that there are consequences for sin. And conversely, we should know what righteousness does among people. It causes people to have hope. Which brings us to the next point, hope for redemption. So after the battle... After the bodies of the king and his sons are paraded through the country and mounted to a wall, uh, there's the news spreads of their defeat, and the message now comes to this small group of folks in Jabesh Gilead. Maybe as you were reading that, that country or that little city rung a bell. I think I've heard of Jabesh Gilead before. Uh, it should remind us of chapter 11. If it doesn't, that's okay. I had to go back and look it up too. Um, this is one of Saul's really good moments. Actually, when we were in that, I said of this, this was Saul's one good moment. 
Saul saved the folks of Jabesh-Gilead from a man named Nahash the Ammonite. He came up against them. Saul came in and delivered them. And they remembered what Saul did. Look at verses 12 and 13 of our text. All the valiant men of Jabesh-Gilead arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. They weren't going to have the bodies of their king and the king's sons on display in a Philistine city. So they went and they took them back and they properly buried them, something that the Philistines would not have done. They wanted to prevent them from further desecration, to give them a proper burial. But notice, and I love this part too, they buried them under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh. Remember the tamarisk tree, the one that Saul sat under with his spear as he made such wise pronouncements uh, to go and kill all the priests of the city and things like that that Saul said. For whatever reason, this was his seat of power, and they buried him under it, under this tamarisk tree. So the men of Jabesh, remembering what Saul did for them, went in against the enemy, saved the bodies to bring some kind of finality to the people of Israel. There's an obvious connection for us here. It would be good to see it. There are none past the point of deliverance. Not even Saul in his dead state wasn't past the point of deliverance. Not to say that he was saved eternally by this action, but he was given some dignity in his death and for the people to see. Saul was returned to a state of dignity for the people of Israel. And I think it's, we could see this as well, the people in our lives, that we desire to have salvation. Just think about the many people in your life that you wish salvation for, that you know they're, they're folks, that you, you love them as people, but they don't know Jesus. Think about those people. They are not past the point for our Savior, Jesus Christ, to save them. What did Jesus do? Consider what he did. He found us while we were what? Dead in our sins. While we were the enemies. He found us and delivered us from sin and death and has given us a new life. His enemies weren't the Philistines. If they were, it would have been easy for Jesus He could have just snapped his fingers and killed them. But his enemies were the curse of sin that we brought into the world. And death that sin brought with it. Jesus defeated those enemies. Not only for each of us who claims to be a believer, but for all of those who would believe in him. We all know John 3.16, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should have everlasting life. 
And so the men of Jabesh-Gilead so loved Saul that they risked their life to bring dignity and honor to Saul and his sons. And I think we definitely see what Jesus did for us here and what he can do for anyone else who believes in him. So what do we do as a, re- as a response to that? What is the way that they hear those words? We preach the gospel. It has power. It isn't just some nice words that we say, but it actually has power. The men didn't just say, I wish Saul and Jonathan would have had a proper burial. Oh, well. And then they just kind of went on about their lives. No, they went and took it away from the Philistines. God didn't just say, I wish my creation wouldn't have sinned so that I could have communion with them. The man that I created and said, very good, I wish he wouldn't have turned away from me. Oh, well. No, he went and he took them back. He sent his son, Jesus, to do that with his death and his shed blood for our sins. Jesus suffered complete and utter desecration. If you want to think about what Saul and his sons were going through here, Jesus suffered that much more mutilation on the cross so that I could have guilt-free and shame-free salvation, never to have any condemnation in my life. That's the power of the gospel. We preach the gospel because we know what the gospel is. It's Jesus calling his sheep, and his sheep will hear his voice. Preach the word, brothers and sisters. Let us see to it that his sheep hear his voice and listen and come to him. So quickly, in conclusion, I think this book has been very valuable for me personally as I've read through it and studied it. I hope it has been for you as well. I think first and last here we see our Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, the author and perfecter of our faith, who not only delivers us from sin but calls us to new life. And so church, let us live as those who have been delivered from condemnation without fear, without guilt or shame. And then let us make our calling and election sure. Let us examine ourselves and live as if we have this new life to which we have been called. Let's go to the Lord prayer. Oh, Jesus, as we come, we are thankful that we see your redemptive acts through the pages of this book that many would deem as simple Jewish history. But for us, it is the story of redemption. It is the story of how you have saved a people for yourself from the foundations of the earth. It is instructive for us. Lord, help us. Help us to see the sin in our own lives that comes in the way of us bringing glory to you and to you alone. Lord, help us to examine ourselves, to make our calling and election sure that we might demonstrate our faith through acts of love and mercy to a world that does not know you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.